You're listening to Reading Glasses, a show about book culture and literary life designed to help you read better. I'm author Mil- I'm <laughs> Mills? Is that what you're, what you're gonna say? I'm a MILF if cats count. <laughs> I think you're making a lot of assumptions. I'm a cat MILF. I'm a, you're making assumptions a, that cats are children. I'm a sea MILF. Uh, I'm author, filmmaker, and book devourer Mallory O'Mara. And I'm Bria Grant, filmmaker and e-reader. This episode, we're talking library systems and the dirt behind them bum, and bum, bum. interviewing Adam Sokol from Professional Book Nerds, a podcast we both enjoy. But, but first, first... Oh. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, what are you reading, Bria? I just finished this really great book called The Grief Keeper by Alex Villasante. It is... I would say... I would say it's science fiction, but it's, a, it's like a light sci-fi. And it is a... It is about two um, immigrant sisters who come to America and they uh, basically get basically get recruited. I don't, I don't want to give away too much. They get recruited to be in a program in which uh, the, there's a company that is trying to – this sounds very sci-fi when I say it out loud um, – trying to they take people's grief and put it into another body so if you have ptsd or something oh wow you can take your grief and put it into somebody else what about that other person right so they i as i mean look we live in america where there is not great things happening and i think this is really an interesting way to look at the way we treat immigrants and so they they're like look if you take this person's grief for a certain amount of time we'll give you your, your citizenship Holy shit. Also, I, I do want to say that what counts as light sci-fi for Bria is like normal okay. sci-fi for everybody else. I, that's what I'm going to say. Like all of that being said, I finished this book. It's great. All of that being said, it is... Who is it by? Alex Villasante. I believe it, oh. I believe it's um, the first book. Um, it is mostly though sort of a YA coming of age with a romantic element. I would not guess that I at know. all. Wow. Right, I know. Huh. I didn't either because I had heard about the book and I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's an interesting idea and I thought it was going to be much more, I mean, it is very like political and very like touches on a lot of like really relevant subjects, I think. But um, but yeah, it ends up being this like kind of like, I mean, I wouldn't call it fun. It is fun. It's, it, it is more that fun it, time when you're talking about crippling grief. Yeah. And dealing with the subject of grief, which is a subject I'm really interested in, and I like, I like thinking about. No, I just I actually do like reading a, about the, cause yeah, it's, because grief yeah. I think is something we don't talk about much, and especially like extreme grief, and we don't. I mean, not to get dark, but the way we don't deal with it, obviously, the way to deal with it is not to put it on other mm-hmm. people, which I think is this whole other metaphor that she's going for. Anyway, I loved this book. I thought it was fantastic. Um, if it is it is a sci-fi book, but I'm going to say it is a light sci-fi book. So if you're looking for like hard sci-fi, I think you would like it. But if you aren't into sci-fi, I also think you'd like it. <laughs> Recommending it to everyone across the board. <laughs> what about you? What are you reading? Uh, I am reading the book Affinity by Sarah Waters uh, because when we're recording this, it's about almost mid-September, which means I'm gearing up for the greatest time of the year. And so I'm starting with, uh, I'd been reading, wanting to read this book for a while and it's kind of spooky. So it's kind of spooky. It's not like a horror book, but I'm like, it's, it's a good intro to the spooky season book for me. Um, it's about this woman and she's going through, it's actually funny, she's grieving. She's going through some kind of thing and you're not, and at the beginning of the book, you're not 100% sure. You know something bad happened, but you don't really know what. And her, she's living with her mother and her mother's kind of taking care of her and she's um, on medication for something and you don't know what it is. And a family friend suggests that she should once a week go into this uh, of the woman's she, this is all in London she goes to this woman's prison to like talk to the inmates there and to like be a good example for the women and they just think it'll be something good to keep her busy and one of the women that's in the prison is um, 
a medium and yeah. she's been arrested for fraud um and but the the main character takes an, an, an interest in her because she's a very interesting woman and then throughout the book you're trying to figure out if she actually is a fraud some spooky stuff starts to happen yeah. it took a little while for me to get into it but once i did it, i mean it's sarah waters so it's wicked wicked good oh that's rad that's super rad yeah uh, so that's affinity by sarah waters mine is the grief keeper by alex villasante all right. We want to take a moment to share some listener feedback. We have a hot book tip from Blythe. Wow, wow. Hot book tip. Hot book tip. Uh, so Blythe- it's too early for us to make that noise. I too know. early in the morning. Uh, so Blythe says, I wanted to give a reading tip for audiobooks. I've never been someone who could follow audiobooks well. My attention would wander too much and I would lose the flow of the story. I wanted that to change as I knew listening to books would give me more opportunities to read. So I started this year by rereading books in audio form. Since I had already read the book, if my mind wandered a little, I would still be able to follow the story because I had read it before. What I also found was that I picked up on things I had either missed or just forgotten about. After rereading many books this way, I tried to listen to a new book and found my concentration was much better. About half of all the books I've read this year have been audiobooks. That's a really good book tip. Yeah, that is a good book tip and not something I would ever think about doing because yeah. I have trouble listening to audiobooks because I can't pay attention. But if I already knew the basics of the story, if I zoned out for a second and came back, it wouldn't be a big deal. Yeah. That's interesting. Test it out. Good tip, Blythe. Grace wrote in. Uh, so my reading quirk is that I read while showering. <laughs> Okay. I know that uh, <laughs> reading while taking a bath is perfectly normal, which I do a lot of too. But as for as long as I can remember, I have read and showered. I can wash my hair, shampoo, and conditioner while holding the book with one hand and doing my business with the other. I usually don't do this with library books or borrowed books because the risk of water damage is too high, obviously, but I do it with my own copies. Mallory... Do you do this? Because I feel like you bring books in all sorts of places no. where you shouldn't. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I think. Uh, well, my problem is I, I can't wear my glasses in the shower. Oh, okay. I got it. Got uh, it. So if I have to hold the book far away from me okay, to okay. keep it away from the water, I can't. can't t- do it. If I had to hold it close enough to my face to be able to, I, I only have a foot. I have a reading distance. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so so hold it, it would have to it'd be a wow. soggy book. I feel like Grace must be really into her books too. So then Laura sent in a wheelhouse, which is a plague that kills everyone. Into it. Female driven adventure. Mm-hmm. Coming of age stories. You should just combine all three of those. That's a great story right there. <laughs> that's, that, that's Bria's whole wheelhouse. Cyborgs. Magical societies from other planets. Our world, but only slightly different. <laughs> I like that too. Time travel that has heart wrenching consequences mm. and magical abilities that feel real. Nice. So you can email us at readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. If you want a list of all the books we talk about on the show delivered to your inbox every month, you can sign up for our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. So before we talk about library systems, we're going to take a quick break. Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner. Baby, this is family. My uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. A new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for maximum fun.
This week, it's all about library systems. There's been some talk in the news lately about why the Dewey Decimal System is not a good library system. But what exactly is the Dewey Decimal System? And what are the other systems that libraries are starting to use? And why was Mr. Dewey a butthole? First off, what the fuck is a library classification system? Because it would be really annoying and completely fucking useless to have a massive pile of books libraries organize all their titles and classify them so you can actually find them instead of just like oh here look in this massive dragon pile that we have Mm -hmm. uh so but there are a few systems that are common and used by most libraries across the country how big would a dragon pile be that would not be that you ever seen the hobbit Oh, oh, I see what like you're saying. Like a dragon's horde. I thought you meant like a pile full of dragon books. A dragon pile. I mean, that you could also make a dragon pile out of dragon books. Okay, so the two most popular er, library classification systems are the Library of Con- Congress system and the Dewey Decimal system. The Libra- Library of Congress system was developed by, you guessed it, the Library of Congress. Side note, the Library of Congress is an actual library. They yep. have 32 million cataloged books. So cool. Yeah. Uh, Book Riot has a really fun column I just read about how to get a reader card there because you can get a reader card I've go been, look at those books. I've got. I, I've been there. I got a researcher card there. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah nice. And it was it huge. The card. Uh, <laughs> I mean, now it's like you a publisher's clearinghouse library card that you get. <laughs> I mean, sure, was it? No, it was no. a normal size card, but it was a very what big about library. The library. It was amazing. Cool, but was it huge? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I just can't stop picturing this massive library card that I'm, like, riding like a magic carpet. (laughs) The Library of Congress system is mostly for academic and research libraries. Uh, The numbers in the system have three lines. So the one describes a subject and one that usually describes the author, and the last one is the year of publication. Um, It was invented by Herbert Putnam. Lovely name. What a nice, <laughs> that what a nice library like a, inventor name. It sounds like, like a nice clean man with a vest on. Yeah, a vest and like maybe he's got a little pocket watch in there. Oh, like he yeah. pulls out and he goes, I'm sorry, I'm late. Yeah. <laughs> he's basically the rabbit from Alice Yeah, we just did describe that rabbit. Yep. Um, it was invented in 1897. It was the second library classification system he actually invented. Wow. He invented one before and it was called the Putnam classification system. Don't you think he wished that one would have taken off Seriously. instead of uh, Library of Congress? I'm sure he was very bummed when he was like, uh, yeah, what a he's like, well, what about, what about mine? What about the Putnam? You don't like the Putnam? I bet his home library was all Putnamed. Yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, wow. If you invent a library classification system, you think you try it out on your home library oh, first? Yeah, that's how you know it's good. Yeah, maybe. Um, the thing about the Library of Congress is it actually has twice the number of classification categories as the Dewey Decimal System. Oh, wow. So that's why you use it for academic or larger libraries and smaller libraries use Dewey because huh. um, they don't need quite as many books. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so the speaking of, so the other most common system is the Dewey Decimal System. And it's, this is probably the system you remember if you grew up in the United States. So in this system, books are organized into broad categories like literature or geography, history. So there's 10 categories like this and they each have a system of numbers from zero, from like the zeros to 900. So literature books are all 800 numbers. Geography, history books are all 900 numbers. Do you know because I worked in a library for four years shelving books, I know the Dewey Decimal System like really well. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I don't remember it as well because it's been 20 years. But at the time, if you were like, I'm looking for a poetry book or like I'm looking for a cookbook in this realm, I'd be like, cool, that's 525. And like I would wow. like be able to like get it down to at least like one decimal. Piece. That's crazy. Yeah, it was nuts. And if you work in a library, because you're shelf- I shelved books every day. So I yeah. got really used to the system. Anyway. That sounds very soothing. Yeah. 
Um, the Dewey Decimal System was invented by a na- man named Melville Dewey. Mm-hmm. Melville, a name that has gone out of fashion, who uh, helped found the American Library Association and set up a lot of core principles in the American Library System. But the American Library Association has been working to distance themselves from him and a lot of his libraries. Uh, we've had a lot of listeners ask us about this, um, and a lot of libraries are switching over to a new system. The question is, why? Why no more Dewey? Because Melville Dewey was a trash baby. Oh, no. Uh, wah, wah. We needed like a trash baby noise. Like, wah, wah, wah. No, it's like a baby crying. I was like, wah, wah. <laughs> With like a trash can noise, like a <laughs> clanking. Give me a... Give me that trash. I don't know. The, this baby eats trash in this. Yes. Someone made to us some good trash baby fan art. I should, yeah. We should whip that back up for this episode. Give me your trash. So Mr. Dewey was accused of sexual harassment and he was anti-Semitic. He was racist. And the thing about it is that these thoughts and like his feelings about this stuff was, is reflected in the classification system and which shelves books and shitty places like how it used to put books on homosexuality under abnormal sexual relations. Right. So the ALA, which is the American Library Association, this year voted to rename their top library honor. It used to be the Melville Dewey Medal. So they voted to take that out to... to to rename the medal. They haven't come up with a new, new name yet. Also, in his biographies, a lot of his friends don't even have anything good to say about him. Wow. Like, and when you look at the recent, they're just like, no one thought this guy was nice, not in, even in his time. Because I feel like a lot of times we're like, well, he was of his time. But even at the time, people were like, no, this guy's he's no good. Yeah. They didn't like him. He had to pay $2,000 to settle a sexual harassment lawsuit in 1930. Jesus. I just want to say... Not a lot of people were settling sexual harassment. People were just like, that's just the way it is. Yeah. This guy had to do some major shit to actually get fined. I actually feel like he had to settle out of court for a, for a sexual harassment lawsuit. Um, when they voted to take his name off that medal, by the way, um, it passed with with no debate. The ALA was 100% go like... Go librarians. Yeah, the ALA was like, yeah, yeah, we'll just take it off. We it took them it. a long time, but still, go librarians. Yeah, well, understandable. The entire... Well, I understand why they wouldn't want to reclassify the books. It's going to take a very... That's such, such a whole yeah. issue. So, like, distancing yourself is one thing, but, like, there's a reason we're still using the Dewey Decimal System. That's a huge undertaking. Yeah. So, but that, I mean, basically, so the American Library Association doesn't want this person's ideals associated with yeah. what American libraries are. So we support that. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean for you folks as readers? So don't be scared by change. And lots of libraries are trying out alternative Dewey-free classifications. And we've talked on the show before about the BISAC system. Uh, people seem to really like it. And basically, the BISAC system is a system based on a book's content, but it's much more comprehensive than the Dewey system. Instead of 10 categories, there's 51 major subject headings with thousands of BISAC subject headings arranged under them. So it's basically the system used in bookstores, mm-hmm. which is cool. So that if, if this sounds all complicated, like if you've been in a bookstore and you found a book, you'll be okay. Right. Uh, so if you're looking for a book about a breed of dog, you look under pets and then under dogs. Right. So that's it's pretty simple. It's, it's, that's, it's not so scary. Here's a few more classifications you may not know about. Oh, <laughs> that I found Ooh, ho, ho, ho. Um, the Harvard Yenching classification. This one is specifically for Chinese language materials. Cool. You might find things organized that way. The London education classification. It divides books into facets, which is the first letter. So if you're organizing this first letter is that and then a lowercase letter of sub facets um, that alternates consonants and vowels vowels. So it's always a syllable you can pronounce. So B, I don't know how this works, but. This sounds very complicated. Bab, B-A-B, is education, uh, comma, general. ROG, R-O-G, is progressive schools. So, like, you just do, um, it's it's basically like a a way you classify it so that you can say, like, instead of, like, oh, it's at 
D twelve like D two one two. You can say like, oh, it's a dog. <laughs> My eyes have glazed over. This okay, is very fine, confusing. Fine. All right, last one. Um, colon classification system is popular in India. Um, the facets describe personality, matter, energy, space, and time, and it's an A to Z system. This sounds like a sci-fi library. Yeah, doesn't that sound cool? Because it has space and time. Yeah, geez. I know. This is the real library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can send your thoughts on library systems to Reading Glasses Podcast at gmail.com. Before we talk to Adam Sokol from the Professional Book Nerds, we're going to take a quick break. This is NASA. Uh, I see a flat Earth, but we should lie to everybody about it and say it's round 10-4. Maximum Fun brings you the latest podcast, an expose on the flat Earth. I want to take advantage of humankind and make them believe a lie so that they will trust us with the government. It's all an elaborate lie, and when you get on a plane, they purposefully fly you farther than you need to go. It's disgusting. It needs to be stopped. And if you listen to Ono, Ross, and Carrie, we will tell you the truth behind the lies. I'm just just kidding. kidding. No, we no. won't do that. We will just tell you the truth behind the truth because what we do is we look at extraordinary claims. That's right. We've gone undercover with alternative medical treatments, fringe religious groups, fringe science claims, the spiritual, paranormal. We're there to check it out and let you know what happens. Is the Queen Mary haunted? I don't know. Find out. We show up. We make friends. We learn what happens when you ask questions and we tell you all about it. And we get all that funky stuff done to us. It's Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org. So here we are with Adam, co-host of the podcast that we love, professional book nerds and marketing specialist over at Overdrive. Adam, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah, I am super jazzed. I got to say before we start recording, anytime I get to talk with you know one, at least one of you guys, it's always a good day. Yay. So Adam, of course, we have to start out. What are you reading right now? Yeah, and, and also I couldn't just do one of these. So I did two. I limited myself to two. Um, so the first one is I'm, re- I'm reading the Renee Ballard series by Michael Conley. Uh, he's doing a live event here in October that I'm uh, hosting for him. So I wanted to make sure I read all of his books. It's like uh, the Renee Ballard series, it's um, kind of crimey. It's almost like every CSI type of show you would, could possibly imagine on, on TV, but they're they're very much like just the facts. So this Renee Ballard is a very flawed uh, police investigator. She does a lot of the like very serious crimes and she works the night shift and um, it's just like a lot of the stuff that happens, it could be like written really gruesomely, but instead Michael Conley just kind of like conveys the information like a police officer would see it. it's very straightforward it's like dragnet where it's like just facts ma'am like it's really good it's, I, I'm, not a, I'm not usually a huge like crime novel person but these have been really really entertaining um so it was really cool and I, I know they're super popular so he doesn't need me to promote him but then the other one is the goblin emperor by katherine addison i just finished this Ooh. have you read this yet no, but my boyfriend bought it and he was like, I really want to read this just because of the title. And I was like, yeah, I do too. <laughs> okay. So a little behind the scenes. I did an interview with Holly Black for our podcast coming up. And I promise this isn't going to just be like a name dropping episode. I swear to God, it's not, I'm not going to do that. Um, but I interviewed Holly Black and she did like the Cruel Prince and the whole Cruel Prince series, which was super popular. And it's all about like goblins and elves and all stuff. And she told me that I have to read this. So I did because when someone like Holly Black tells you to read a book, Got to do it. It's basically like 
the be- it's almost like um like if people like Game of Thrones but they like the political intrigue aspect of Game of Thrones, that's what goes on here. So there's this um, goblin emperor who he's half goblin, half elf, and he was never supposed to be uh, the emperor of this kind of elven empire. But everyone in his family, uh, including his stepfather, who kind of hated him and like exiled him, they were all killed in this mysterious way, and no one really knows how. So by just lack of anyone else being available, he becomes the emperor. And so the whole book is him trying to figure out how the hell he's supposed to be the emperor and all these people thinking much less of him. And it's very much like the day-to-day aspects of what goes on for him being the emperor. And it's just, it is the most intricate and elaborate world building I have read in a really long time. So if people are a fan a, of like Babylon and you know, elvish things, but also more importantly, just like, political intrigue and like things going on in high courts it's super awesome tell your boyfriend i recommend to read it and and you should as well it's it's so good oh that sounds amazing so adam there has been a lot of kerfuffle around ebook pricing for libraries lately there's a lot of stuff in the news there's a lot of think pieces going around and as someone who actually works at overdrive can you kind of explain what's going on for our listeners yeah, absolutely. Okay, this is going to get, as we, before I start recording, I told you, this is going to get a little nerdy, which I think is going to be right up everyone's alley who listens in. As a listener of your podcast, I'm very nerdy, so this would interest me. So, uh, a little bit of background. Um, I've worked at Overdrive for about a decade, and when I first started here, Overdrive actually didn't have all of the Big Five publisher content. We, If you looked at like the New York Times Top 100 books, we probably had like 10 or 12 of them at most. So it's this little cycle where at first we were pushing all the publishers to make content available digitally. And I know a lot of people wonder all the time, like, okay, if this book is digital, why can't like 100 people borrow it at the same time? And the reason is if a publisher made a book available to a library that anyone could borrow anytime, anywhere, and it was a one-time purchase, the publisher would never make any money. And then more importantly, the authors would never make any money. So that's why it's a one copy, one user for most people. And so what happened is we got all the content from all these publishers and we finally were able to say we have, at this point, just about every book you would look for is going to be on Overdrive's systems. And I promise this won't be like an Overdrive commercial, but. I mean, we are, we talk about Libby all the time and we love Libby and we love libraries. So go to town. (laughs) So we have been kind of doing this the longest and we got all of this content from the publishers. And what ended up happening is as people I'm sure know, both digital ebooks and digital audiobooks have become really, really popular as, you know, all of our smartphone every one of us has a smartphone or a tablet or something with us twenty four seven. So the ability to be able to, to read on the go and listen to audiobooks when you're sitting in traffic and wherever else you're doing, it's been really, really helpful. And so what publishers are seeing is as the rise in popularity, they're looking for ways to capitalize on this. And so from uh, if a library buys like a physical book, it's really easy for them to just say, Okay, here's the standard price for that book. The library buys it and then the publisher looks at like that book's going to get damaged or lost or even stolen or, you know, it needs to be replaced. Well, digital copies don't ever have to be replaced. So they're trying to figure out like what is the value of a digital book. And so what's happening right now is all of these different publishers are doing these different lending models that they're trying to figure out the best way to do it. So basically every big publisher, all the, the big five, you know, your Penguin Random House, your Macmillan, your HarperCollins, all of them. They have um, basically lending models where like a library will purchase a copy of a book and they'll have that that copy of a book for like two years before they have to purchase it or like 52 checkouts or things like that. And they also are making the, the books more expensive for libraries. And all of that has been really frustrating 
but the most the the uh, kind of hullabaloo and all the the jazz that's going on now that really pissed everyone off is Macmillan is radically changing their policy where they're basically saying they're going to release books and then they're going to be windowed for libraries for like 90 days and what that means is that a library will not be able to actually purchase new content that comes out from Macmillan for like 90 days the the way that I think it's going to work is they're going to enable libraries to basically purchase like one copy of their book and then for 90 days they're not going to be able to purchase another copy of it and so if people have looked up any of this lately everyone has been writing about it um you know there's been articles in bustle and the american library association is writing all about it and neil gaiman tweeted about it basically saying like this just seems like a way for mcmillan to sell fewer digital books to libraries uh, our ceo steve potash wrote quite a sassy blog that you guys can find on the internet if, if you're interested but it's really what they want is they want people to get frustrated and they want people to go purchase copies of it, the book themselves so it's a way for publishers to admittedly make more money on these books and just so people know like overdrive doesn't get any more of the money when they raise these prices it's entirely going to the publishers and Publishers are usually pretty slow when it comes to technology and being forward thinking. And it, I, I don't want to like blame them and say they're just being closed minded jerks. I think they just don't understand the power of libraries. And so that's kind of where we're at is all these different lending models based on, you know, whatever the publisher thinks their book is worth. And the, the most egregious one currently being this Macmillan one where libraries won't even have access to the content for a while. So what does that mean for a library user who wants to get a new release Macmillan book? So a couple of things. Um, for libraries, it makes providing content for readers digitally much more challenging. Um, they need to use more of their budget. And in cases like Macmillan's windowing, they just aren't going to be able to provide that content right away. And I mean, to be frank, like I said, publishers are banking on this lack of content that it's going to lead readers to just go buy the book themselves. And I think the problem is like what many publishers don't realize is uh, libraries are a massive tool for discovery. Um, you know, think about all the authors and books you've like learned about because you were just taking a chance on them at the library. Um, this happens like all the even greater numbers digitally. A perfect example of this. Um, I know you're good friends with Madeline Rue. And yes. I discovered one of her books like several years ago because I borrowed it on Libby because I wanted something like young adult and spooky. And I have since my wife and I now own all of her books because we like fell in love with them. And that's because I read the book at the library. And so just like to be a little nerdy on Overdrive's websites, we see like tens of millions of sessions every single year, like tens of millions of people come to our website. And in 2018, there was 25 million website visits that didn't involve a user borrowing anything. So this means that basically 25 million visitors were there just to discover books that they might be interested in before going on like Amazon or to their local bookstore to go get the book itself. So it's a huge discovery tool. And um, we're actually, Overdrive is, we kind of founded this project called the Panorama Project, and people can learn about this at panorama panoramaproject.org and i'll send you if you want to put it, a link in the, the show notes or anything but basically what this panorama project does is it's trying to show publishers and prove the value of libraries and library users to their bottom line you know it's a way to show people like all the discovery that you get through a library ends up 
promoting and actually helping authors and publishers get their their titles you know more out there in the world if that makes sense yeah, so that means so if Macmillan does this, it means someone who wants to check out this Macmillan title at the library won't get to do it when the book is coming out and buzzy. Exactly. And it's honestly, it's going to be even more frustrating for users because they have that one copy that they can purchase. So like if you go to your library, you know, like LAPL for you guys or like, you know, here in Cleveland, the couple of Cleveland libraries I can access, it's not even going to be that you're not going to see that the book is, you're not going to see the book being unavailable. You're going to see the book available, but the wait list is probably going to be like 200 people, especially for those really buzzy books. And so what's going to end up happening in their mind is people are just going to get irritated and go purchase the book which is possible that might end up be what happens, but you know what the American library association and overdrive and all of the people that are trying to advocate for libraries are hoping happens is that end users will either, you know, tweet in Macmillan or email them the American library association. If you go to their website, they have like a whole little petition that people can sign. Like they're hoping people will take action and, and sort of show these publishers, all of this backlash that's going on right now, like to show them like, this is not, it's, this isn't okay. This is not what the idea of libraries and, and books and shareable information was ever supposed to be. So speaking of libraries and library systems and checking out books, we talked a lot on this episode about the Dewey Decimal System and about why some libraries are switching over. So why, can you talk a little bit about why a library would want to switch from that system? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the Dewey Decimal System, as people probably know, it's it's the numbers and the weird decimals, and those mean some strange thing when you go into a library. And, and no one's really at this point super sure the classifications and what they are. And so what a lot of libraries are switching over to is, the, is BISAC. And I think I've heard you guys talk a little bit about BISAC on other episodes, but it's the Book Industry Standards and Communications. And what that means is it's like a much better way to describe what a book actually is about. And so if you were to go to a library and look up, say, true crime under the Dewey Decimal, like everything that falls under true crime would have one Dewey Decimal uh, Dewey Decimal, like kind of section of numbers, and you just have to sort of figure it out while you go over that section. What BISAC does is it makes it a lot more uh, clear what types of books you're actually looking for. So a BISAC code for a book might actually be like true crime, abductions, kidnappings, and missing persons, or like true crime, heists, and robberies. So it's not just that like general idea. It's breaking down to more specific genres because there's so many different genres of things that, you know, like like your book, for example, it wouldn't just be a biography and it wouldn't just be a memoir. It would be, you know, a biography and a memoir about, you know, life in Hollywood and movie monsters. You actually might have the most specific. <laughs> I was like, that is on the fly. Um, but it just makes, uh, it makes live, it enables libraries to group materials together and arrange shelves in like a better way that makes more sense for readers and it also lets them get away from the Dewey Decimal System which I know we're going to talk about in just a second. Yeah <laughs> so do you want to talk about why maybe Mr. Dewey is not a good representative of the American library system? Oh, do I ever. Uh, to, steal, <laughs> to steal one of your terms which I now use in real life uh, Melvin Dewey was quite the trash baby. <laughs> so longer probably better answer which I wrote to you in an email that I think like spurned like ended up being the reason for this episode um so while 
Melvin Dewey was responsible for like a lot of the core principles of libraries as we know them. And like he did help find the American Library Association. Um, but they've been working to distance themselves from him since 1906. Uh, he was accused of, and almost certainly truthfully, of sexual harassment, and he had a history of anti-Semitism and racism. Uh, he wouldn't let minorities enter the resort that he and his wife owned. And um, fun fact, he claimed he couldn't be anti-Semitic because, and I'm quoting him now, many of my choicest friends are Jews. Like, he literally, wow. he literally sounds a lot like our Orange Julius president. Um, oh my God. So one of the reasons why this, this wasn't like more at the forefront is that a lot of biographies that were written about him, like right after his death, um, they were written in like the early thirties and they were like, just ludicrously kind to him. They were calling him a genius and some of them called him a prophet, which is just gross. Um, as opposed to what he should have been called, uh, which is like a six foot tall stack of shit. Um, yeah, <laughs> I can't speak directly for the libraries about like, if that's directly why they're moving away from him. But what I can tell you is that the American Library Association, like, finally stripped his name from their most esteemed award in January of this year. Um, they don't move super fast always. <laughs> I think nothing in books moves very fast. I, I know it's, it's frustrating. And there's, um, I can send you a link. There's a really decent article about it, uh, from Publishers Weekly, but like, yeah, it's just one of those things where if he was around, it, you know, having a few good ideas is definitely does not make you a good person in many instances. And uh, he's a prime example of that. Adam, thank you very mm -hmm. much for this is this is this is the inter in in library uh, info that we really needed for this episode. <laughs> and so last time you came on the show, we didn't have this question. Yeah. So I'm very excited to ask you, Adam, what is your wheelhouse? Okay. I knew this was coming. So I, <laughs> I, uh, I prepared an overly intricate list because I am like you guys, I'm a nerd. Okay, so I have, You know we love a specific wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, like I listen to every one of your guys' episodes and the intricate wheelhouses are like my favorite thing you guys do. So I had to make one of my own. So, okay. I have young adult fantasies with strong female and or LGBTQ lead characters. Uh Nice. Found worlds where the book seems to start off normally only for characters to discover a magical world that they are somehow connected to. Um, so like Never Ending Story or a book that I know you're reading right now, which is the best book of the year, which is The Starless Sea. Um, oh, yes. Okay. So I've also got dark reimaginings or retellings of fairy tales or folklore. Um, origin stories for characters I've always adored, like um, Hide and See by Gregory Maguire, which was all about the origin of the Nutcracker. Um Ooh. Yeah, yeah, uh, new takes on magical rule sets like in Magic for Liars or Alice Hoffman's Practical Magic. Um, Fantastic. Comedic memoirs as audiobooks read by the author. Have a few more. Um, <laughs> pretty much anything that has a lady pirate or some connection to Norse mythology. Um, murder mysteries in the vein of Agatha Christie, but especially with unreliable narrators. Nostalgic looks at slower lives, like every anything that Wendell Berry has ever done. And then horror stories that are somehow connected to real life events, like Adriana Mather did the How to Hang a Witch series, which is like Salem, the Salem Witch Trials. Or if they're connected to classic uh, movie monsters, like, I don't know, your book. With <laughs> I'm literally looking up How to Hang a Dude, Witch right now. <laughs> okay, so Adriana Mather was, can it, she is related to Cotton Mather, the guy who was like from the Salem witch trials. 
Oh my god! Wait, is this nonfiction no, or fiction? fiction? She wrote like a YA version where there's this girl who is related somehow. I actually think she, I think she might use her own name as like the main character or someone related to it. But she tells this story about this girl who comes to Salem and she goes to school there, and it's like in modern day. And there's all these like spooky, weird things going on. And she thinks she sees this kid who's a ghost, but she's not sure. And there's a whole stuff connected to the Salem witch trial. And like, it's just a super fun, like YA horror. But then at the very end of the book, there's a note from Adriana Mather where she explains, hey, so I was connected to this guy who is not so great. It's pretty infamous what he did. Um, and that was kind of what sparked her writing about this. And she has a second book that is, I think it's called The Haunting of the Deep. It's in the same series, but it's um, connected to the Titanic because she also had a family member like in her family that survived the Titanic. She has the coolest, it's like what? the most ridiculous family tree. So um, I'm literally, as listeners can hear me live as I go to put a hold on this via overdrive. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I did that, when we, like Jill and I do our monthly picks of like the best books coming out in the, in the next coming month, and like before we share that episode, I put all of Jill's books on my list and she does vice versa so that we're higher up on the holds list because we're terrible people and want to make sure. That's incredible. That is true friendship <laughs> right there. Uh, all right, Adam. So how do we find you online and how do we listen to professional book nerds? Yeah. So the easiest way to find me is if you just go on Twitter or Instagram and search for at pro book nerds. Uh, I do most of our posting on those. And then there's links to my personal ones in the bios. If you really want to see pictures of my dogs or the food that I cook. <laughs> um, and then if you want to subscribe to our podcast, just wherever you listen to podcasts, just like this one, you know, whether it's iTunes or Spotify, wherever it is, just search for professional book nerds, click that subscribe button. And then our episodes come out Mondays and Thursdays. So on the Thursday episodes, just listen to Mallory and Bria first, because I know we're we're, uh, we share a release day on Thursday, so I won't be offended if they listen to you guys. Right? It's people can go both ways. It's fun. It's funny because we yeah. do the same thing, <laughs> but uh, but we yeah. listen to we make sure our podcast works, and then we download professional book nerds. I'm I'm not kidding you when I tell you that I laugh every time that I listen to you guys' podcast, and like you mention either Jill or I or like the podcast or Overdrive, and then I listen back to the podcast that we just released that day, and like one of us is talking <laughs> about one of you guys. It's just like. It's just like Venn diagram that's a complete circle. Yeah. That's the, I mean, really the whole reason you get into book podcasting is so you can get free books and then you can make book friends. Like that's that's the whole deal. <laughs> You're right. The amount of friends I have, like you guys that are also just book podcasters now, I think just all of our all of our followers on all the social medias, it's like 50% are actual listeners and then 50% other book podcasts. Some, that's just, we're one like weird family. Some event planner right now needs to put together a book podcast con so we can all hang out together. Thank you. Yes, someone who has more time than you are. Yes, please. seriously. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Mallory. It is always a pleasure. Now it's time to solve a bookish problem from one of our listeners. Helen writes in, Since I am a big old theater nerd who reads plays for both work and pleasure, I decided to create a shelf on Goodreads to track the plays I read. This means each play I read gets counted towards my book reading goal on Goodreads for the year. But is this cheating? Plays aren't usually as long as books. I'd estimate one full-length play reads about as long as a novella most of the time. Then, shorter plays and one-act plays are more like short stories in length. So is it fair to count either a full-length play or a one-act as a full book experience? Bria, what do you think? I think totally counts. Comic books counts. 
comic books counts. <laughs> comic books count. This totally counts. Reading is reading is reading is reading. Mm-hmm. Um, theater and art are really good for you. I, I, I was thinking about this when, when I was reading it because I read a lot of scripts. I read, I would say, two or three scripts a week, maybe. Yeah. Which I don't count. Um, but I kind of think plays are different because they're in print. They've sort of withstood the te- test of time. And I, I feel the same way about scripts, but particularly, uh, particularly about plays. I think they are designed to be enjoyed in a visual, in art as themselves. I think they are an independent artwork outside yes. of. Whereas I think screenplays. I mean, people can argue one way or another whether but or not no one, it's just a roadmap. You're never going to buy a, a screenplay in a store. You do sometimes. Well, but I, but I mean, they're most of the time screenplays are not printed to be read. Right, right. But whereas Majorly plays famous are. movies are like you can buy like if you want yeah, yeah, to go buy like the, the, Larry Edmonds and go down to the film the the film bookstore and buy stuff like that. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. And there's definitely ones where it's like the screenplay and then they have like pictures from the movie and stuff and that's kind of interesting. But I do think that like plays have often withstood the test of time they get um or or they're published they aren't publishing that, like well, any, old, I mean. any old play yeah yeah it's been published yeah and i think that plays even more so than screenplays are um their own pieces of independent art mm-hmm. i think you could read a play and then it's a different piece of art once you interpret that play you yeah. know what i mean yeah and um I, I feel sort of same way about screenplays but i think plays even more so so i do think that like you should just count them and i think i don't know if you were these are so these are so interesting because I feel like our listeners are so much like us where it's like, but do I count it? Because yeah. it's not fair. But I'm like, my my thing is like, you know, don't be, a, if you're comparing to somebody else and you're like, well, I read 500 books this year, but 200 of them were one act plays. Like, you know, don't make someone feel bad if they only read 20 books or they, yeah. they read full books. You know, I think it's, it's, if you want to count them, you count them as books. These are books you're reading. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I think a play counts as a book. I think if a novella counts, then play totally counts. I yeah. don't think this is cheating. If uh, I do think if it's a one-act play and it's the length of a short story, maybe just don't count it. Just because, like, unless it's a collection of one-act plays, maybe. Just because, like, some reading you can't count. You can't count articles you read online. You sure. can't count newspapers and magazines. I mean, you can, I guess. But, like, a single short... If Like, I read a short story online, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, that's a book that I read. Well, what are we talking about count? Like quote unquote, is this like for the for this person's like Goodreads or like what is the in like my, like in my in my personal tracking journal? If I read a like a short story, uh, I uh-huh, wouldn't uh-huh. count it. Uh-huh. But if I read uh, a novella, I would totally count it. Yeah, and I do think like if you're reading like you know forty one act plays in a year, but they're not bound, I think you should write them down and put them in your journal. Yeah, you know that like, I, that I would. I wouldn't put them on like, Goodreads. Have like a play. Well, they're not even going to be on Goodreads. I don't think are they. It's a good question. I don't know anything about plays. I don't know. I, don't know um, I think um, I think that like putting them. Are you laughing because I don't know anything about theater? Oh, because of you're like I don't know anything about theater. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the fact that you don't know anything about theater. It's like the. I don't know, the yeah. Um. Yeah, I think you should count them, and I think if you want, maybe if you're like if this is a journal thing, have an extra place in your journal where you just write down the one next place you read. Oh, yeah, though, I think that's a smart thing. Because I do think it adds to, like, your, especially if you're studying theater, it adds to, like, your knowledge of theater, which is an important thing. That I would totally do. And then yeah. all the all the regular plays you read, totally count them towards your book hole, for sure. Yeah. 
All reading is reading is reading, folks. Mm-hmm. So if you want us to solve your reader problem, you can send it to readingglassespodcast at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank Danielle and Kathy who are in our Facebook group and Chrissy and Rachel who moderate our Goodreads page. Remember that you can buy Reading Glasses tote bags and shirts and bookmarks in the Maximum Fun store. There's a link in the show notes. You can help support us and help us feed our cats. And if you want to support the show for free, you can rate and review us on iTunes. It's really great for us. It helps us reach more readers. It makes us happy. It shows us that you like the show. It makes us feel good about ourselves uh it's just all around there's no there's no downsides uh you can email us at reading glasses podcast at gmail.com find us on twitter at reading g podcast on instagram at reading glasses podcast and you can always follow along on our bookish adventures using the general hashtag reading glasses podcast thanks for listening and thanks Thanks for for reading. reading maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned audience supported